Now, I told you it would take a while to get through Romans. We will cover usually more than one verse. But if you're like me, sometimes you read these introductions to books of the Bible. When I was a baby Christian, I just thought, why is this there? Let's get to the meat, this and the genealogies and the Old Testament. Why are they there? God, what are you doing with these texts? And as time goes on and you study the Bible more, you realize there's really something important here. This is here for a reason, for the original readers, but also for us here today. As we look just at Paul's introduction, just as what he says about himself here, we need to learn from it. We need to see what it teaches us, not just about the man Paul, but, but about what God is doing through him, what Christ is doing through him. And that'll play out in the rest of the letter. So let me read to you the, the whole paragraph here, verse 1 all the way through 7. But we'll just be looking at verse 1 here today. Paul, a bondservant, really a slave, literally a slave of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, having been set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for His name's sake, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ, to all who are beloved of God in Rome, Called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now you may recall from last week that the opening of the letter, the introduction, starts in verse 1 here, goes all the way down through verse 17. And this is the way that Paul would introduce his letters. It's longer than most ancient letters would be introduced by the writer. But there's a reason for it. He, he's including the theme of the letter. He's greeting them. And he's basically saying, here's what I'm going to cover in the rest of the book. Paul tells us here about himself in verse 1. And he's saying who he's writing to by the time he gets to verses 6 and 7. He gives thanks to God. And then he covers the main theme of the letter. But just the first seven verses, if we just look at what I, what I read here, that's a complicated structure, paragraph, in and of itself. And this is how Paul writes. This is why we need to slow down and almost look at phrase by phrase. Not every sermon, but when you're reading, slow down and look at what does this mean? You see all the commas there? That's because Paul packs quite a bit into what he's saying. Often quite a bit of theology he's packing in there. And he's assuming you'll read the rest of the letter and understand more of, of what he's saying here in abbreviated form. But these first six verses or seven verses are really telling us about who Paul is and who the church is that he's writing to. We'll learn more about the church in chapter 16, but he wants them to know who he is. Remember, he hasn't been to Rome. Paul's not been to Rome. If you're going somewhere to stand before quite a few people and teach them and talk with them, you might want to know somebody there. You might want to connect to somebody there. And he did know some people. He did know some of the believers. He had met them in other places like Corinth. But you would want some connection. It's always better when a preacher goes into a context where he has some connection. Do these people even believe what I believe? Or am I going to have to back way down and cover the real basics of the faith? 
And so Paul just writes ahead and tells them, here's the gospel of God. Here's the gospel that Christ gave me to take to the Gentiles. And I want you, he says, to listen to what I have to say. And so the way that he's telling them to listen is by talking about his credentials, talking about who he is. They know of him, but they haven't, most of them haven't met him. They know about him, but they may have heard some things that are rumors, that are gossip. Paul is often defending against attacks, against his apostleship, against his ministry. And so he wants them to know the truth, who he really is. Some information about the gospel that he actually believes. He wants them to know so they'll be able to connect with him. So they'll be able to say, that's what we believe. Teach us more, Paul. Teach us more. And so, who is the real Paul? Who is the author of Romans? I wanted to name the sermon something more fancy, something better sounding. But John Piper, many years ago, stole my sermon title. The author of the greatest letter ever written. So since he did that, I'm entitling this sermon, The Author of Romans. We're going to look at three ways that Paul describes himself. Three ways he describes himself. And this is going to help us not only to learn about Paul and who he is and from him, also to see what God is doing, what God is doing through Paul, what God has done through Paul, continues to even do many ways in the church today because of the Apostle Paul. The man who wrote a huge part of the New Testament. The man who took the gospel to many of your ancestors. The man who planted churches throughout the Roman Empire. This is how Paul describes himself. He's going to describe himself in three ways in verse 1. First of all, he's going to tell us about his master. The author of Romans wants us to know right off the bat who his master is. He says, Paul... Describing himself, that's his name, that's his Gentile name, a slave of Christ Jesus. He's telling us right away who it is that he serves. But notice, first of all, the very, very first word in the greatest letter ever written. The very first word is a person's name. It's a person's name. If you were going to write this grand theological textbook, you wouldn't start off with your name on the very first sentence. You might have your name on the front of the book, but not in the very first sentence. And Paul does this for a reason. And as James Montgomery Voice says, it's a miracle the word Paul is even there. There's so much we could say about Paul. We really don't have time in one sermon to, to cover all about Paul's life. We will touch on some details. A whole sermon should be dedicated to Paul, or maybe two. But here's what he says. I'm Paul, and I'm a slave of Christ. Jesus. Just to cover the basics of his life, the name Paul first appears in Acts 13, verse 9. And you might go to some of these passages as we're going through Acts. I won't slow down much, but just to cover his history, the, the name Paul doesn't even show up until Acts 13, 9. And Luke, the writer of Acts, says, But Saul, who was also known as Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, fixed his gaze on him. So before that, this man that we call Paul was named Saul. And Saul was a Jewish person. He was a Hebrew. And his Hebrew name is Saul. And his Gentile name is Paul. It's not that Jesus gave him this name like he did with Peter. No, Paul had a Latin name. Paul had a Hebrew name. 
So his Latin name, Paulus, just means little. And there's been all kinds of speculation as to what he's doing with the name little. I don't know. Ask his parents, I guess, if they gave him that Latin name. Maybe he was short. Some people have supposed. But his name was Paulus, Paul, little. And the reason that Luke starts using Paul's name suddenly in Acts 13.9 is because now Paul is going out to the Gentile world. So Saul, a Hebrew name, isn't going to have as much of a welcome as a Latin name like Paulus would. And so he knows that his Gentile name will be better understood, better accepted. And he's going out to preach to them, to plant churches to them. So Paul tells us about his early life. He tells us here in his accounts in the book of Acts, he says that he was a Jew by birth. And if you read the first chapter of Galatians, you'll see more of his history. He was from Tarsus. It was a Greek city, if you study ancient history. It was a Greek city on Asia Minor. And it's where many Jews had migrated to. And so Paul was likely educated. You get the sense that his family was well off. And he probably went to the best schools, the best university. There was a university there in Tarsus. And he went there and he would have read and learned from all the pagan writings of the day. If you went to college, if you went to university, you studied the philosophers, you studied the poets, you studied Homer. And he would have read those. In fact, he even quotes some of them later in his letters, two to three times, roughly. He quotes pagan writers. And he does that to say, look, even the pagans know what is true. Even the pagans have understood this truth. Now later, Paul becomes a Pharisee. Or maybe his, his family was involved, his father was involved as a Pharisee. But at some point, he joins the movement. He's trained under the renowned Rabbi Gamaliel in Jerusalem. He becomes what he says, a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee of Pharisees. He's zealous. And a Pharisee was somebody that was separated from worldliness. They separated themselves. They lived a more legalistic, we might say, holy life. And Paul was so zealous that he begins to persecute Christians. And so we see the name Saul mentioned first in Acts 7, when the death of the deacon Stephen is being reported. And Paul is standing there where they lay the cloaks as they throw the stones at Stephen. One of the first Christians martyred, and Paul is right there. He's probably heading this persecution up. If we go now to Acts 7.58, we'll begin to see his zealousness to persecute, to even see Christians killed. And it makes it that much more amazing that his name starts the book of Romans. Acts 7.58 here. It says, when they had driven him out of the city, this is Stephen, they began stoning him. And the witness laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. He's a young man. He's zealous for his God. And they went on stoning Stephen as Stephen called out, Lord, and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Now look at 8, chapter 8, verse 1. Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. So if you're reading through Acts, you don't know who this guy Saul is. Suddenly he's introduced. You don't know that he's going to be Paul later. He's going to be called Paul, the greatest apostle to the Gentiles. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So the apostles stayed. Paul is part of this persecution. It ends up scattering Christians. Verse 3 But Saul began ravaging the church. He wasn't just turning in people. He was ravaging the church. Entering house after house. Dragging off men and women. 
he would put them in prison. He would put them in prison. They would await their upcoming execution. He was so zealous for Judaism that he hated Christians. And he did all that he could to persecute them. Sometimes people will say, I've gone too far with my sin. I can't be saved. I had a a guy once tell me that. He had worshipped Satan. He had gone to prison for drugs. He got out. I was telling him about the gospel. I was telling him about Christ. And he says, you don't understand. I've done so much God could never forgive me. And I said, well, what about the Apostle Paul? You grew up in the church. You heard about Paul, how he killed Christians. He sought them out, brought them back. And he says, even looking back, that he enjoyed it. What about that? Tell people that whenever they're asking and saying, God can never forgive me. He can. He can forgive your sins. So later, Paul's going to recount this story in Acts 26. He says, so then, so he's speaking to King Agrippa. He's standing before trial. He says, so then, I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And this is what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prisons, having received authority from the chief priests. So he was a lackey for the chief priest. He was working for the chief priest, the Sanhedrin. He says, but also when they are being put to death, I cast my vote against them. And as I punished them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. He tried to force them to deny Jesus. And being furiously engaged with them, I kept pursuing them even to the foreign cities. He says, it's not enough to catch them in Jerusalem. When they leave, we need to go get them there and bring them back and put them to death. But then Paul met the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul met the Savior. Look at chapter 9 of Acts and verse 1. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. So Luke is, at the time he writes this, Luke is a, a disciple of Paul. He's a follower of Paul. He's a Christian and he's writing the gospel of Luke. He's writing the book of Acts. And here's what he says about his uh, apostle that he's following around. How Paul was back before he was saved. He breathed threats. He breathed murder against the Christians. And he asked for letters from him to the synagogues. So he wanted a letter to get him into the synagogues. At Damascus, so that it, if he found any belonging to the way, that's what they called early Christianity, the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So he wants to get them, tie them up, have his guys that are with him drag them back to Jerusalem. As he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? You notice Jesus talks about Christians being part of him, his body. That's how he refers to the church, his body. He's trying to get at the Lord Jesus Christ when he's persecuting Christians. And Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? Why are you doing this? And Paul says, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city. And it will be told to you what you must do. The men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. Leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. That changed his whole life. He was completely transformed at that minute. 
He was now a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was saved by Jesus. And Jesus gave him a commission. It's not often that, that men are saved right away and go right into ministry. But in this case, the supernatural meeting with Jesus Christ, where Jesus both saves him and then right afterwards tells him, here's your mission. Here's your mission. And Paul opens up more of that. It's not in Acts 9 here, but he opens it up in Acts 26 as he looks back on that. He says that Jesus tells him, you're going to the Gentiles to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God. Just look at how he describes conversion. From darkness to light, from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins. And an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. All that Paul had gone through. All the sins he had committed. And the Lord forgave him for all of that? Yes. That's the gospel. That's the good news. And not only that, but then he turned Paul around and used him for his glory. Just like the demoniac who had a legion of demons. He was saved. He was forgiven. And Jesus sent him back to his people to evangelize. But the Paul here who wrote this letter, this letter to Romans, he's not the same man that he was when he was known as Saul in the early parts of Acts. He's not the persecutor and the blasphemer. He has been transformed. And he says right off the bat here in Romans, I'm a slave of Christ. He couldn't have said that in Acts 7. He couldn't have said that in Acts 8. But after this point in Acts 9, where he's saved, he could say, I am a slave of Christ. The Greek word is doulos. Doulos is the Greek word. It literally means slave. Not bondservant or servant, as your translation might say. And I know many do say servant here. A servant's a person employed in a house on domestic duties or as a personal attendant. A slave's not employed, though. They're not, they're not serving. A slave is owned. And so if your translation does say servant, just know that it should say slave. I'll make a note here on the the new Legacy Standard Bible coming out. Hopefully all the cargo and shipping issues don't delay it too much. I wanted to start Romans just preaching from that. But the problem is most of you don't have that yet. What few we have been able to get have sold out of the bookstore rather quickly. And I know the app is out. Rather than have everybody stare at their phones during the service, I thought we'd just wait. And at some point, I would like to switch over. But until then... I'll often be quoting from the Legacy Standard Bible. And they do have slave in these circumstances where it has doulos in the Greek. The word is doulos. It means slave. And and often translations have shied away from that because they don't want you, the reader, to think of American slavery. And to think of how bad that was and then say, I would never want to be that as a Christian. A slave to Christ? That's the wrong terminology. So they've sort of... To put it simply, shied away from using the word slave. But it's here for a reason. It's inspired of God. It's put in the text. And servants have freedom to choose whom they work for. Slaves do not. A slave is considered property. Are we property of Jesus Christ once we're saved? It's a fitting term. A slave is owned, bought with a price, receives no wages, and cannot quit. Praise the Lord, we cannot quit If we're a slave of Christ. We cannot exit from that wonderful slavery. So while being a slave of another person is not something that you would wish for. You don't want to be a slave of another person. To be a slave of the Lord is wonderful. It's 
awesome. It's grace. It's mercy. The Bible uses this word. We shouldn't shy away from it. Even John MacArthur, he wrote a whole book on this idea of slave. He says the New Testament commands believers to submit to Christ completely. And not just as hired servants or spiritual employees, but as those who belong wholly to him. By the way, that's what slavery is about. You're completely owned by a person, the person Jesus Christ here. MacArthur continues, we are told to obey Christ without question and follow him without complaint. Jesus Christ is our master. A fact we acknowledge every time we call him Lord. That's what the idea of Lord is. Master. We are his slaves. Called to humbly and wholeheartedly obey and honor him. It's right that we would want to be called slaves of Christ. It means you're a Christian. It means you're a holy committed follower of Christ. Even Charles Spurgeon said where the KJV, the King James Version, softly puts it servant. He says softly puts it servant. It really is bond slave. The early saints delighted to count themselves Christ's absolute property. Bought by him, owned by him, and wholly at his disposal. So Paul says, this is my master and I'm a, I'm a slave. I'm a slave of this person, Christ Jesus. He puts the word Christ in front of Jesus. Now often we say Jesus Christ, and sometimes Paul does. He does later on, down in the text. We saw that. But the reason, I think, the reason that he puts Christ first is to emphasize the Messiah. That's what Christ means. Christos means, in Greek, it means the same thing as Messiah, Meshiach in Hebrew. The promised coming king. He says, I'm a slave of what the Jews have looked forward to, the Messiah, the coming king. The one who will be the savior of the Jewish people. Who would be the ruler of the whole earth. He's, he's already hinting back towards the Old Testament. Back towards the book like Daniel. And this ancient of days vision that Daniel sees. So he puts Christ first. He's emphasizing he's a slave of the Messiah. But he also mentions Jesus, his human name. Jesus represents his human name, his humanity. He's not only the son of God, the coming ruling king of the world. But he's also He's also human, fully human, fully divine. You already get a hint of Paul's Christology here, his doctrine of Christ. And so he says, that's my master. He's the one who bought me out of slavery. He's the one who saved me. He's the one that I serve. If we're all going to be a slave of something, wouldn't you want to be a slave of Christ? Go forward in Romans and let's see how he develops this. Just quickly, Romans 6, 16. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? He says, look, everyone's a slave. You're either a slave to sin or a slave to righteousness, a slave of God or a slave to Satan. Look at verse 17. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. They heard the gospel. They believed. Now they're slaves of God. They're slaves of righteousness. They're slaves of Christ. Now skip down to verse 22. But now having been freed from sin. You see, they were slaves to sin. Christ came in and he freed them from that. And now they're enslaved to God. And they get benefits from being a slave. Sanctification. I'll take that slavery any day. 
Do you want to be the slave of Christ? Maybe some of you here today aren't slaves of Christ. Maybe you can't call yourself a slave of Christ. You don't like that teaching. It doesn't sound good. doesn't sound right. You don't want to submit to the Lord. But you should. You should. He's the only Savior of the world. Sure, you're, you're going to be a slave of His. But He said, take my yoke upon me. Every, every other religion has a heavy yoke. You have to obey all these laws. Christ says, take my yoke upon you. And learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. He says, look, I'm a gentle master. I'm very humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, he says. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Matthew eleven twenty nine. If you're not a slave of Christ today, then trust in him for your salvation. Trust in him for the righteousness that can only come through him from God. So we looked here at Paul's master. Secondly, let's look at his office. His office. So he says, look, I am a slave of Christ. Even though I've been this sinner, which they might not have known all about his past. But he says, even though I've been a sinner in the past, now I'm a slave of Christ. So no, I'm just like you Romans, you slaves of Christ, you Christians there. I'm like you. But also, he's been given an office. He's been given An office gift, we might say. He says, called as an apostle. Just a little phrase there, but we need to slow down and think about it. What do each of these words mean? Called, apostle. It's pretty important if Paul's going to start the letter with that. And so an apostle is the highest of the office gifts given by Christ to the church. We saw that in Ephesians 4.11. You probably... I heard that read or even preached on here before. Ephesians 4.11. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. So there's a list of gifts. At the top of the list are the apostles. They're the highest and the order of offices given to the church. They're gifts, but they're also offices. Meaning like a position, a responsibility that Christ gives. The word for apostle in Greek is apostolos. It's a term derived from the verb which means to send. To send away on a commission. To dispatch. Often used by the Romans when they sent out a, a general of the navy. A whole bunch of ships would go out. And the leader there of that navy was an apostle. A messenger. Now in the New Testament it's used specifically as appointed messengers of Jesus Christ. And not just to take his message but they have His authority that he's granted to them. They go in his name. They go in his authority. That's why he says at the end of Matthew, I'm with you to the end of the age. Go, therefore, he says, I am with you. Now, only Christ himself can call an apostle. That's what he's saying. I've been called. God has put a calling upon me to do this. He didn't say, I volunteer. He didn't say, I want to be an apostle. He says, look, I'm called by the Lord Jesus Christ is the idea. And he says that specifically in Galatians 1.1. Paul. Again, he starts the letter with just his name. Paul, an apostle, not sent from men nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. He's been sent by Christ. You can't say, Paul, you just uh, elected yourself or you had some people gather around and you paid them off so they would elect you as an apostle. No, it's only through God. It's only through the Lord Jesus Christ. Then Jesus, of course, uh, saves Paul and directly says, Paul, you are my minister. 
This is what he means by called an apostle. God called him. And Ephesians 1.1, 1, 1, he says, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. It's not by human will. It's not by Paul's will. It's by God's will. Paul didn't become an apostle by personal ambition or drive, only by the appointment of God. Now that's important because not just anyone can become an apostle. There's three qualifications in the Bible. The New Testament is so clear. It's as if God knew, and of course he did, that people later would come along and call themselves apostles. And so he gives the qualifications very specifically in Scripture. First of all, an apostle had to witness the resurrected Christ. Look at Acts 1.22. He had to witness the resurrected Christ. You don't get to be an apostle unless you have seen Jesus Christ resurrected. So Judas has committed suicide. Judas is dead. And they need to find a replacement. They need to find a 12th apostle. And in Acts 1.22, it says they're looking for somebody that has been among us. Beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us. One of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. They had to have been there through this time period to see the resurrected Christ. Now, when did Paul see the resurrected Christ? Well, he wasn't there at this meeting in Acts 1. He was still an unbeliever. He was still uh, getting ready to persecute Christians. But he did see the resurrected Christ on the road to Damascus. It was obvious. No one could doubt it. Even the men who were with him were blinded. It was so powerful. Only the glory of the Son of God could do such a thing. And so he saw the resurrected Christ. He was a witness to the fact that Christ was alive in the flesh. Now, the second qualification. So you have to have seen the resurrected Christ. But secondly, a lot of people saw the resurrected Christ, but not all of them, secondly, were appointed by Christ himself. An apostle has to be appointed by Christ himself. Look at Luke 6.12. This is Jesus talking about how he appointed, from all those who were following him, how he appointed the original 12. Luke 6.12. It was at that time that he went off to the mountain to pray. So he spent a whole night in prayer. He's praying for this very important choosing. Of course, he already knew, the Father already knew, who these men would be. Jesus is praying about this event, though, that's about to happen. He spent the whole night in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples to him, all those who followed him, all of his believers, and chose from them 12 of them, whom he also named as apostles. So sometimes you hear 12 disciples, and that's speaking of the 12 apostles. But those had to be appointed by Christ. Well, was Paul appointed by Christ? We know that he was. We've seen that in Acts. He even talks about that. 1 Corinthians 9. When you're studying the Bible, just pick up on these and, and realize this is the theology God gives us through the Bible. If we put these passages together, we see that there's some qualifications to be an apostle. He says in 1 Corinthians 9.1, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? So he says, look, I've seen the Lord. I've seen the resurrected Christ. And he's already saying I'm an apostle, meaning he's been appointed by Christ. We see this again in 1 Corinthians 15, 7. He's talking about the gospel and how it 
went out and who saw the resurrected Christ. And he says in 15.7, Then he, Jesus, appeared to James, that's his brother James, then to all the apostles, that's the original 12, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. I've been untimely born. I'm, I'm younger than them, is probably what he means here, or most of them. And he appeared to me. I came afterwards. I was saved afterwards, but he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Look, I'm not fit, he says. I'm a sinner. But God did save me and God called me. Christ called me to be an apostle. So first qualification, they have to have witnessed the resurrected Christ. Secondly, they have to be appointed by Christ himself to be an apostle. And thirdly, they have to confirm their mission and their message by miraculous signs. 2 Corinthians 12, 12. Again, Paul, dealing with this idea that there's a lot of false apostles. There's people attacking his ministry here. In 2 Corinthians, he's dealing with that. And he says in 2 Corinthians 12, 12, he says, The signs of a true apostle, the signs of a true apostle, were performed among you with all perseverance, by signs and wonders and miracles. How did you know if a guy showed up in town that he was a true apostle of Christ? He could say that he's seen Jesus. He could say that he's been appointed by Jesus Christ himself. Well, God has designed it so that he would show forth. He would show them miracles and signs and wonders. Just like Christ did in his ministry to confirm the message. And that's what signs and miracles and wonders are, by the way. They're, they're to confirm the message. So there's three qualifications of an apostle. Paul met every one of them. Which means there's no apostles today. There's no apostles today. Just look at the qualifications. A a witness to the resurrected Christ. Appointed by Christ himself. Confirm his mission and message by miraculous signs. This was for the early church. These gifts were for the early church. Paul even says that in Ephesians 2.20. He says, speaking of of the church, he says... Having been built on the foundation, the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. He laid a foundation once. This building has a foundation. We're not going to come in and lay another foundation and another foundation. It's been laid. It's done. Now the walls are coming up. The people, the people are bricks. People in the church that are saved are the bricks of the church. We're like the walls going up in the household of God. There's no more apostles today. Paul is an apostle. He has that authority. And that's important because when people claim to be apostles, then if that's true, they have the authority of Christ. Whatever they say, they could write a whole new book of the Bible. The early church had that strong foundation of apostles. They wrote down their letters and the accounts of what they witnessed with Christ. And they passed it on to us. They gave it to us in the scriptures. Now that we have that, the apostles have died and passed off the scene. And they turned it over to pastor elders to continue training up men in the scriptures. But pastors and elders, we're not not apostles. We can't write scripture. We can't tell you with 100% authority what Christ said unless it's right here in the Bible. We rely upon their testimony because Christ worked through them. Paul saying, look, I have the authority from Christ. I'm a sent one. I'm a messenger. I'm his apostle. 
He's not going to give his opinions in Romans. He's giving the word of God that's coming out through him into this letter. Now there's people today that say there are apostles. The Pope in Rome considers himself part of the apostolic succession. That from Peter, there's been this succession all the way down to the Pope today. And yet, it's clear from these qualifications that he doesn't meet any of them. Also, just in the new apostolic reformation, we have apostles supposedly popping up everywhere. There are churches not far from here that claim to have an apostle. And they'll come and make these videos and put them out online. And they'll say, I'm an apostle. And they'll give some teaching, which is usually not all that biblical. And they're part of this movement called the New Apostolic Reformation. Because most of Christianity throughout church history has believed what I just said. They have said, look, there's no more apostles. They have passed away. That gift is no more. But recently, there's been this idea that there should be apostles in the church. And so one man, C. Peter Wagner, a professor at Fuller Seminary in Los Angeles, about 30 years ago, He started this movement called the New Apostolic Reformation, the NAR. And it's not really an official denomination, but it's an organization, it's a group. And he says, we represent the most radical change in the way of doing church since the Protestant Reformation. He even wrote a book called Apostles Today. And he says, for apostles, he's calling for apostles to assume their rightful sphere of authority to see God's will accomplished here on earth. If somebody claims to be an apostle, you should run. Particularly if they're trying to tell you what God is saying through them. If you think you can evangelize them, then go for it. But maybe they're just a really, really confused baby believer. Be careful. We have a clear delineation in Scripture as to what an apostle is and the qualifications that they receive. So Paul tells us about his master. He's a slave. He's a doulos of the Lord Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus. He's also an apostle. He's been called that. He's been moved to do that through the will of God. And lastly, he tells us his purpose. His purpose. And he's going to really expand on this purpose. And we'll talk about this next week. He'll expand on his purpose from verse 2 all the way down through verse 5. His purpose, what is it? You see it at the last phrase there, set apart For the gospel of God. And really the LSB has it uh, translated better. The verb here. Having been. Because it's perfect passive. Having been set apart for the gospel of God. It's something that's already happened. It didn't just happen yesterday. And it has an effect on his ministry. Even at the point that he writes this letter. Something in the past that has a continuing effect. Having been set apart. He's been set aside. He's been... We could say elected. He's been predestined probably is an even better word. He has been chosen for the gospel of God. What does this mean? Well, it means that God has sent Paul for this specific purpose. To take the gospel to the Gentiles. He's going to get into that in the book. Not only sent him though, but at some point in Paul's life, And I'll even argue before that, before creation, that God has set him apart. He has called him to be an apostle long before even the road to Damascus. Paul says that himself. Let's look at when he was set apart. When was this? When was this setting apart? 
Well, he says in, in Galatians, before he was even born, Galatians 1.15, But when God, who had set me apart, same wording, same verb, even from my mother's womb and called me through his grace. Just like in Ephesians 1, and he writes about how all believers are called in eternity past. God has chosen, elected, and at some point he lets us hear the gospel and he opens our hearts so that we might believe. Now he's saying, I was called through his grace and even called to be an apostle, predestined from his mother's womb. And I think we could even say into eternity past, as Paul does in Ephesians. Now this calling is actually applied the moment he meets Jesus Christ. The moment he's on the road to Damascus. Just like in your salvation, Paul tells us in Ephesians 1, that he's elected, he's predestined. And then at some point in your life, you actually believe. And that's when it's applied to you. That's when that predestination, specifically of each person, is applied to you. At the moment you believe. And so that happened. But even after that, again, Acts says that Paul was set apart. If we go back to Acts 13.2, when does Paul have this same verb applied to him? Well, when he's in his mother's womb, he says, or even before that, we could argue, when he's uh, met Christ, certainly Christ commissions him and sets him apart to go to the Gentiles because all the other apostles are, are staying in Judea, staying with the Jews initially, evangelizing them. But in Acts 13.2, Many years after Paul has been saved, it says here, while they were ministering to the Lord. So they're in the church here in Antioch, the early church. And there's many Jewish people in the early church here in Antioch. And it says, while they're ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart. Set these people apart. Set these men apart. Set apart for me, Barnabas and Saul. So this is before we start hearing about Paul. He's still going by Saul because He's there with the Hebrews, with the Jews. Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. Then they go out and they start planting churches. Paul had a purpose. Paul is not just a Christian who decided to sit down and write his thoughts out. He's not writing a book of ideas. He has been sent by Jesus Christ for a purpose. To take the gospel of God out to the Gentiles. Paul's whole purpose in life. His whole purpose in ministry. Is to proclaim the gospel. To preach the gospel. To tell people about the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord that we know. The Lord that we worship. And you say hold on pastor. The Romans were believers. The Romans are mostly Christians of course. The, the Roman church that he's writing to. What is he doing proclaiming the gospel? Well, he wants to make it very clear what the gospel is. And he wants to build them up in the faith. The gospel is not just something you hear when you're saved and then you go on about your life. You know, I got my get in free card to heaven. No, the gospel is all about Christ. It's about a person, what he's done for us. And also... We get the effects of that justification through sanctification. We continue to become more and more like Christ. And Paul's going to lay that out. He's going to talk about what you've received if you're a believer. What you've already received is justification. If you trust it in Christ alone. He's going to go then into what happens. What are the effects of 
justification? What are the effects of salvation in your life? Paul says, I'm coming to see you someday, but until then, I want to proclaim the gospel to you. Which means us believers, we need to hear the gospel. And not only just the basics of the gospel, we need to think about what it means for our life. What it means for your life every day, every breath you take. You don't get to set aside being a slave of Christ and say, you know, the gospel doesn't apply to me today. No, no, it applies every day to your life. And Paul's going to open up that. And by the end of the book, he's even specifically saying, here's how you live it out in your life. You don't live out the gospel. You live out the implications of the gospel. Let's look at this phrase. And we'll close with this. The gospel of God. What is it? What is the gospel of God? Well, he's talking about the source of the gospel here. He's saying it's God's gospel. It comes from God. It's the gospel which comes from God. It's not a man-made gospel. Gospel means good news. In English, it goes back to good story is basically what it means. What it means in, in ancient English. Euangelion in Greek. It means the good news. The proclamation of the good news. And this is God's good news. It's not man's gospel. There's a lot of man-made gospels today. There's a lot of people talking about the prosperity gospel. How God will make you rich. God will bless you. God will give you everything you want. You want a new car? Just tithe. You want a new house? Just uh, pray this certain prayer that they give you. It's called the prosperity gospel. It's a fake gospel. But people love it. And they're just flocking to it. There's the works-based gospel. Every religion, except the true religion of Christianity, every religion out there says, if you just work hard enough, God will see it. God will save you, whatever God they believe in. But this is the gospel of God here. Paul's not preaching the man-made gospel. In fact, he's going to get into that whole idea of works works versus faith. There's a New Age gospel today. You mix in a little mysticism, a little Gnosticism. It's a great man-made gospel because it helps people just all come in from all kinds of faith. The problem is it's not the truth. It's the new age. It's something new. It's something fresh. Books are flying off the shelves. But it's not the gospel of God. You have others like the emergent church gospel, the social gospel, the liberal gospel, the easy believism gospel. There are many people who once taught and still do that you don't have to make Christ your Lord. You don't have to go through this idea of being a slave of Christ. You just have faith. You don't need to repent necessarily. Easy believism. Let's lower the bar lower than the Bible even gives of what a person has to do to be saved. The Bible says have faith and repent. Christ is your Lord. You have a changed heart, a new nature in Christ. So none of those that I listed are the gospel of God. Paul's going to proclaim the gospel throughout the rest of this letter. We're going to talk about the gospel every week as I preach on the gospel of God. And it's not going to be the basics, the elementary principles necessarily every week. We're going to go as deep as Paul takes us. And he does go very deep by the time we get to chapter 9. Romans is about God. It's about the good news that God gave to the earth that God gave to humanity through His Son, Jesus Christ. But ultimately, it's focused on who God is. It's ultimately focused on 
making us want to worship him as believers. Here's what Leon Morris said about the book of Romans. He said, God is the most important word in this epistle. Romans is a book about God. And no topic is treated with anything like the frequency of God. Everything Paul touches in this letter, he relates to God. And our concern to understand what the apostle is saying about righteousness, justification, and the like, we ought not to overlook his tremendous concentration on God. There's nothing like it elsewhere. It's about God. All these theological terms that we're going to look at, all this great deep theology, it means nothing if you detach it from God, from Christ. It's about the gospel of God. So next week, we'll look at the next few verses on exactly how Paul talks about the gospel of God. Until then, let's learn from him. Let's, let's follow in Paul's footsteps as far as being a slave of Christ. We can't follow in his footsteps. Don't try to be an apostle, of course. You don't follow in those footsteps. It's not possible. But we can line up with his purpose. We can want to take the gospel to others. We can tell other people about Jesus Christ, what he's done for us. And so let's be inspired by what we see here, but also realize what God has done in Paul, what God is going to do through the rest of this letter as we study it as a church, and what God is doing in our own lives. Let's now give thanks to him. Lord, we do thank you for the book of Romans. We're so grateful to be at a place where we can dive into it, where we can study it, where we can hear it proclaimed. I pray, Lord, that our church would be transformed, that we would see people saved like Paul was on the road to Damascus. We know that that Christ is not appearing in that same way, but he still saves people. He changes hearts. He shines light into darkness. And we also pray for believers here that we would be built up, edified, strong and stronger and strongest. All of us would grow in the faith. Let us be more and more like Christ. Let us understand what he's done for us. And the implications that has in our life. You are our Holy Father. Through your Son Jesus. By the power of the Spirit in our hearts. We pray this in our Holy Father's name. Amen.